question the podcast. Okay, so you're doing the tagline from the film. Question the knowledge. I made it question, question the knowledge. The podcast. So the the poster yeah. for this movie. I am just trying to imagine seeing it in a in a multiplex, like yeah. you know, like the standee for this this movie in 1995. The, the a brisk January. Right, a bunch of uh, have you, Michael? You please talk. Have you seen the poster? I assume you've seen the poster for Higher Learning, the like theatrical poster. Honestly, no. I'd like. I have. You're gonna have to describe it to me. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna describe it. I love describing posters. All right. Okay. Great. 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 This is it. Uh, Micah, get Describe, ready. Yes. These, this is, isn't it so much more fun this way? Isn't it so much better that I don't know what it looks like? All right. Absolutely. And I would argue this is a poster designed to be described more than it is to be looked at. I don't think it works as well visually as it does orally. So we got, we got a red background. So it's all in a red background. We got question the knowledge. That's the tagline. The film is called Higher Learning. Color, color of fire, blood, power. Exactly. Yeah, you know, right. Ooh, right. Yeah. All right. So so the title, the tagline, that's on the right side of the poster. On the left side, we got this kind of like series of abstract st- symbols that are stacked on top of each other, like a sort of like a sort of a Jenga pile of yes. symbols. Is that what? Yeah. Yeah. You know, OK, so at the bottom, we've got um, the symbol, the male symbol, a circle with an arrow coming out of it. And Lawrence Fishburne's face is inside that, which Already, I'm I'm uh, having seen the film. I'm not sure where that's coming from, but okay. God damn! All right. Next up, we've got a um. Um, I, I'm sorry. You just I'm I'm sorry, David. Just to stop you, you described that symbol weirdly. I I think just the cleaner way to um circle the, arrow coming out of it. Well, no, it's the it's the Austin Powers necklace. I mean, let's just say <laughs> let's just save our listeners time and mental energy. So you start at the bottom with a classic Austin Powers pendant. Right, exactly. Okay, so you've got an Austin Powers symbol, and then um, on top of that, so sort of balance on top of that, we have, um, it's actually two female symbols, so circles with pluses coming out of them, and Christy Swanson's face is in those. Now, balanced on top of that, we have a fist, a raised fist. Wait, not, wait, it's just, wait, 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 wait hold on, hold on, yes, hold on, with, please. The, with the female signs. And Christy Swanson's face is in both of them. It's not Christy Swanson Correct. and Jennifer Connelly. It's just Christy. No. Sw- so we're already just abandoning the internal logic Correct. of the grouping of the. Okay. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I do want to, to bring us back a second. I don't, I still don't totally get why Lawrence Fishburne's in the male symbol. Like, I don't think that's really his vibe in this movie, but whatever. Um, no. Sure. But yes, we are, we are kind of abandoning the internal logic. Maybe they tried it with. Connolly's face and it looked weird. Maybe that's why I don't know. I don't know what the situation is there. I mean, she does have like more like square features that you know. It, maybe it doesn't fit in the whatever. Anyway, continue. I don't know. I mean, look, I'm not going to question them, but let me just say, I just think it's always good business practice to put Jennifer Connolly's face on a poster, <laughs> right? Just from a graphic design standpoint. I mean, points. Why, yeah, yeah, compelling elements. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, as I said, on top of the female symbols, we've got a, a fist with Ice Cube's face in it. Next to that, we've got, I, I hate to say it, a swastika. And, and whose face is in the swastika? Of course, Michael Rappaport. On top of that, we got two things. We have a peace sign 
Yes. Um, you know, the little plain symbol with uh, mm-hmm. Omar Epps's face. And then sort of sort of balanced on top of it, a gun, just a gun. And those are the symbols of higher learning. Gun, peace sign, swastika, fist, uh, two female symbols, one Austin Powers pendant. I love dorm room philosophy. Uh, you know. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing. Can, can I just say, the part of this poster that jumps out to me the most is that with all the other characters, they're doing sort of like that X-Men first class thing where you're just sort of making out a sliver of the actor's face within the symbol, right? Mm-hmm. Omar yeah. Epps' face is so perfectly formatted within the peace sign. He looks like when there were talking letters and numbers on Sesame Street. <laughs> yes. Like his mouth is like right where like the, the peace sign bifurcates, you know, his eyes are right at the top. I think that's just like, you know, the... Uh, you know, the, the, the close to perfect construction of his face. It's just like, he, I, I he's think just, so. You know, it's, it's just well arranged, you know? Because Michael Rappaport, you're, you're just going like, okay, that's the reflection of a Nazi in a swastika. When you look at Omar Epps, you're like, that is a, a anthropomorphized talking peace sign. That is, this is a character. The character is a peace sign. Yeah, this is like, you want to root for him. You want to. It's just, it would have been funny if they literally went for uh, the symbols have to absolutely reflect the character. So, sure, maybe the female symbol is Christy Swanson and uh, Jennifer Connelly. But, you know, maybe Omar Epps, not the peace sign, but he has like a little a little jogger, you know, like a sort of a <laughs> stick figure running. I don't know, something like that. Maybe Definitely. he's the, the walk symbol from a streetlight. Yeah, <laughs> But there's speed lines behind him, so you see he's walking fast. Lawrence Fishburne could be like in a mortar board or something, <laughs> right? Like it's I don't know. Sure. Just some ideas. He's in a book. He's in the pages of a book. He's he's the smoke coming out of a pipe. It also just rude. I mean, we've already said this, but rude, there are six. Am I correct about this? There are six actors with single card billing in this movie, and five of them made the poster. Connolly's the one who's left off. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Tyra Banks didn't get single card billing. Hmm. Maybe she did. Maybe she did. I don't. No, I don't think she does though, because it's it's alphabetical, and Connolly is first. I'm looking at yeah. The credit block on the poster is Connolly, Cube, Epps, Rappaport, Swanson, Fishburne, and Fishburne. Yeah, no justice for Jennifer Connolly, and uh, we don't stand for that here on Blank Check, which is a, a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks, make whatever crazy passion projects they want, and sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce. Baby, this is a mini-series on the films of John Singleton. It's called Pods in the Cast. I'm Griffin. I'm David. Ooh, you're getting good there. See, I was trying to throw you off. I was ready. I could see you when I didn't say it at the part where I'm supposed to say it. I could see that you were you were stealing yourself. You were you were locked in. Yes, I appreciate it. You're getting sharp. You're getting sharp. Uh, Today, we're talking about higher learning, which I would argue is his his biggest like his first of two consecutive blank checks. Right. Poetic justice feels to me strategically. And I talked about this too much, repeated myself too much in the last episode. But Poetic Justice feels to me like a second film where he's saying, I am not going to swing for the fences. I'm not going to do the big ambitious follow-up. I'm going to keep my 
my my check warm for a little bit. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to pocket the blank check for a movie. Uh, this is certainly a blank check film. Yeah, sure. I Yeah, yes, yes. I think it was, I mean, there's some scenes in terms of scale, like where, you know, like where the crowds are scattering around where I'm like, God, this thing was a whole fucking production. And it's his third Columbia movie. He's making, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it's only with the next one that he moves to another studio. Like, this is him continuing the relationship. Yeah. Stephanie Allen, who is vice president of production at Columbia at this time, said he had carte blanche. He could do whatever he wanted to do. I think that the like biggest indication of that is the fact that the university is named Columbia University. And in a sense that like, you know, our main character literally gets up and runs out of there. <laughs> he said it was his last movie on Columbia. Feels very like, you know, all right, fuck y'all. I'm out. Yeah, you know you're absolutely yes, absolutely right. Yes, I and just also he just threw everything into this movie. I think is the the nicest way to put it, right? Like, yeah, if you're talking about a blank check project, yes. Uh, I never seen this movie before. Uh, You you have been sort of prepping me for for your thoughts on this movie being sort of a very ambitious mess, and I unsurprisingly, as is my want to do, uh, totally just kind of unabashedly love how ambitiously messy this movie is. I just It is very messy though. Yeah, but it it is. But but it's just any movie that's got this much it's trying to say with this sort of like narrative ambition, I'm kind of just in the bag for. Hmm. I'm not surprised. I'm slightly yeah. surprised. I don't know. But I'm intrigued. Keep going. Introduce our guest as well, obviously. Do we introduce the the, the podcast? We introduce the podcast uh, you introduce yourself, you're David. I forgot to ask how our guest wants to be introduced. Uh, well, you know, you can, I will just say that this is a sound only co-host staff writer at The Ringer, Micah Peters. Well, those are great things to say. Yeah, Micah Peters is our guest today. Yes, those are, those are things I should have asked in advance. <laughs> You know, it, 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 it'd be like that sometimes, Griff, you know. It is, it is. We're all uh, losing our minds. Uh, Micah, thank you for doing the show. Of course, of course. What is sort of your relationship to Singleton's filmography at large and to this movie in particular, in, in, the, in the micro? Oh, the thing is, is that I, I don't really have like a strong attachment to Singleton. I'm not really like a completist like that. Obviously, I was four when Higher Learning came out, but <laughs> like this is one of the Singleton films that I like remember distinctly watching. This being like, you know, it was on stars at like 9.30 after, you know, your parents went to bed. So you sit down and catch like half of it. And then you come back like a week later and watch the whole thing. Or maybe you only start from the beginning and then a week later you watch the whole thing. But it's the only one that I can like really like remember. And I rewatched it for the first time in a very long time uh, earlier this week. But yeah, I wouldn't say that like I am a Singleton scholar, although I do remember reading about how he did like a, a TV spot, like, on, like, I think it was like PBS news hour or something. And they were just like, what are you going to do now that you've, you know, made 
something as tactile and subversive and like personal as boys in the hood. And how are you going to top that? And he's just like, well, I'm 26 and I'm black and I'm in America. So I think I'm just going to write about angst. And like, that is basically what the movie is. There's not really any sort of centralized message to it. It's just people being angry and attempting to like reckon with themselves and each other. I mean, yeah. Micah, you're landing on a a, a more uh, eloquent uh, explanation of why I fall for this kind of movie. I, I generally like the overly ambitious, messy movies that are just driven by anger. When someone's just like, I got so much shit to say and I don't know how to say it. Give me three hours. And this very <laughs> much feels like a three hour movie that was cut down to two hours. And I think he said that there was a large chunk that the studio made him cut out just for runtime reasons. I think Connolly in particular got the worst of it. I feel like they had to be more Busta Rhymes too. Yeah. Definitely more Busta Rhymes. He should have cut more Jason Wiles. No offense to Jason Wiles, but like a little offense to Jason Wiles. That's a wet blanket character. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that act, Jason Wiles, who is in Kicking and Screaming and somehow does not ruin it, is the worst. I'm so sorry if he's listening to this episode. I have no idea why he would be. I'm rarely that mean, but I do not like Jason Wiles. Cut to Jason Wiles wearing a Ben nickname shirt. Drinking out of a no-bits pro Smith's mug. Right. Just quietly dropping it, a single tear running down his cheek. It's just like there's one skit for Family Guy where like there's the 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 douchebag with the acoustic guitar sitting underneath the tree and like bounce like a bird on his knee. And he's just like, I keep every beer I've ever drank on a shelf. And it's like he's singing off-key and shit. That is Jason Wiles in every fucking movie he's in. He belongs in the college movie. There's no question. He's the most college-ass actor ever. Yeah, the flowing hair, the Henleys, and the hiking boots, you know. I'll say this, too. Like, he he's so ineffective in this movie that I was like, is Michael Rappaport a psych-out? Like, is he going to be the one who shoots everybody? <laughs> there has to be Michael something... Rappaport, like- <laughs> sitting there mumbling to himself and you're like maybe he's all right though <laughs> fuck jason right, wiles right. i was just like but somehow like michael rapaport's given this is all somehow wiles is is more unnerving to me i'm more worried about this guy um yes higher learning what you're saying griffin i, I just want to check did you introduce that this is pods in the cast a, a miniseries about john singleton i did say it was pods in the cast look i did a lot of things in the reverse order i didn't ask micah what credits he wanted listed maybe this is my big ambitious messy episode mr big time track star <laughs> yeah exactly the classic narrative of our podcast uh, uh, you know of the directors we follow sometimes right where like each movie gets a little more ambitious and a little less like elevator pitchy right like this this one it's just like yeah what's he's he's like it's gonna be college and it's gonna talk about everything like i don't know what he's even trying to sell the studio on here but it must have like that is that's the point at which he can kind of say what he wants right yeah let me find this article i saw earlier with with, uh, stephanie allen talking but i mean she just said it was like he literally had carte blanche Columbia was so into the idea of him being in-house there, you know, that they were just like, whatever it is, we just want a new John Singleton movie every two years. It speaks to his status as a guy who was sort of seen as, you know, someone uh, driving conversation in the culture, you know, at a time where that was still barely valued in Hollywood. 
you know? Right. If you could produce it on a small enough budget and you could, you know, uh, turn a tidy little profit, uh, they were interested in the cachet of these movies feel important. These movies get think pieces written about them, you know, at a time where we weren't all choking on think pieces. I, I, I wonder how much do you think this movie cost? Like $20 million? I'm trying to like, you know, wh- wh- where are we here? Yeah, because I mean, higher learning costs like ten. I'm sorry, poetic justice costs like ten, right? Right. And boys in the hood costs significantly less than that. It's like you were saying earlier. Like there are like a lot of like I mean, like it's a full college campus that we explore for like two hours. Right. They. I mean, they just had to rent out all of this space, and also it's such an expansive cast. Morris Chestnut is in like Morris Chestnut is the anchor on the track team. And I was just like, holy shit, I forgot Morris Chestnut is also in this movie. And Tyra Banks is the love interest. And like uh, there is I mean, there's yeah, there's just there's all sorts of actors in this movie. He's he's just kind of calling everything in. Yeah. And Morris Chestnut, I could not tell if that was a cut plot or if that's just Morris Chestnut like doing a solid for the guy who gave him his first job because like you said there's a lot in this movie where you're like like when Christy Swanson is sleeping with Jason Wiles and Jennifer Connelly you're like oh okay well so like where's this going and then it doesn't go anywhere Anywhere. (laughs) I was like this this has to be some fucking thin red line-esque you know Jason Wiles is at the premiere and he's like hey where's the end of my plot like you know like I like I don't know I like there it does it's not so like it is there are a few characters whose whose storylines get like resolved sort of but like I wouldn't say that anything comes together at the end of the movie like there's no not, like, I mean I a, think no the the yeah. ending of this movie in fact makes things more complicated I would argue there's a they could end this movie 10 minutes earlier and it would have more power in sort of its ambiguous mystery and then it does 10 minutes of trying to offer resolution that somehow makes everything feel even less resolved. Like I was I, like this, like the, the, okay. So the strongest that like Malik ever is in the movie is like the last sequence where he's talking to Christy Swanson's character after like Deja is shot and killed for no reason. And her death is like Tyra Vick's death is ugly and long and it's so unfair and it's like tough to look at. And then it's like, like platoon. After, yeah. Yeah. All, yeah like, she, it is like exactly. Platoon, yes. It is. It is. <laughs> exactly she literally right. says, why? She why? says, like screams why? to the like, sky. Is, and yes. like, you know, is gurgling. It's like, it is, it's gruesome. It's like, but then after all that, and the first person that like he like opens up to, you know, like trying to reintroduce himself back into uh like, you know, the school community, he's just kinda like, I lost my girl here. First thing she says is, I feel like it's all my fault. And in he like that would have broken the Malik from two hours earlier in the movie. Like, yes. Cause he goes, you know, you can't blame yourself. And it's like I think it's a really great note that he's like shaking the entire time he's doing it. Yeah. But like, he doesn't press her any further about why we haven't talked before any of that. I was going to say, right. She says like, you know, it's actually kind of funny. I don't think we've talked once this entire year. And he's just like, yeah, it's funny. And it's like, 
the sneer he like but no he, he, the thing is that like that is how that's like that is exactly how a person like that would because it's just like i feel like that's how singleton would respond it's just like yo sure i you know probably he wants to say something about how you know it either assume full responsibility for it or accept that it's just a thing that happens because there's nothing anyone can do with i feel like it's my fault and square quotes right and then right. like or you know but instead he like understands like that you could feel guilt, although it's not his to help process. Like, which is, you know, the God is so cheesy to say it, but like, you know, the biggest signifier of like growth or mastery is kindness, especially like the kind that you isn't like really deserved because Lord knows that was an annoying thing to say. <laughs> no, but it's, uh, it's true. Uh, yeah, I do think, I mean, I, the the Melly character is obviously the singleton surrogate, and he said as much. And in trying to figure out where this movie came out of uh, beyond just I have a lot of things I want to say, um, the, the incident with the Rappaport character getting in his face about the Black Panther shirt, singleton said happened to him at USC. And he kind of extrapolated a whole movie from that. You know, it feels like he took that incident and unpacked it into his Nashville at a college campus. I had, well, the thing is that like, it wasn't, it's, it wasn't like, it didn't get all the way to like a physical altercation, but it get, it got into a shouting match about a poster from like the 68 Olympics that I had in my, in my dorm room. Like, I think it's like, you leave home and you go to this strange alien place where the only people that know the rules, like you can't trust the way that they explain them to you. And it's just kind of like a powder keg, like, and it's things like that happen. And yeah, you can see where it would just like, where you can create an entire, where you can catastrophize from a situation like that. Cause it really could go like any kind of way. Yeah, and he was also just such a prodigious guy. I mean, he was so, you know, through talent and circumstance and luck and also just sort of like persistence and focus, he got to make films so much younger than most people do that he was pretty much getting to make films as he conceived of them. Whereas I think a lot of filmmakers, by the time they get to make their first film, they've had like 10 ideas lying around that they've been trying to push uphill. It's like Boys in the Hood was like his his pitch for his application to film school, you know, and then right. that essentially becomes his thesis film. And then Poetic Justice is this reworking of his follow up idea. And then it's just like everything's sort of just like coming to him in real time. I mean, I found this other quote from him that is just kind of so telling where he did an interview with an Australian uh, network in 1995 promoting this movie. And he said. Uh, American college campuses are the only place you can see America in its purest form. I'm so glad you said Australia. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because it is a great opportunity for me, for me to take this running leap to the outermost bounds of the known universe. Because I recently watched Wake and Fright uh, on the recommendation of like a close close friend of mine and you see y'all seen that movie yeah yes. Have you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 so I, this is the first time that like this is the first time i'd ever watched it but like it is it was you know that movie came in 71 after years of like 
Australia in uh, living memory being this like bright, sunny, like place of cheery hospitality where literally anyone, even the gas station attendant can serve you a beer. But then like Wake and Fright makes like makes that like incredibly sinister. And like the main character is like this showy hot shit teacher that is basically has his confidence, sense of self and like sanity eroded, like by this really hostile environment that everybody thought was chill. So it is kind of like a similar story. Yeah. I also just, it's, it's another thing I love. Uh, uh, Margaret, one of my favorite modern movies is another movie. I think that kind of does this, which is just like make a film about America with teenagers representing America itself because of how unique our nation is in terms of just being so fucking young and so arrogant. You know, there's this uniquely American thing to just like how little history we have, how often it has repeated itself, and how cataclysmic we view every event. Um, and and just the the perception of just like we're number one, we're the greatest, we know how to be a country better than anyone else, even though we've been here for a microsecond. Um, right. And I just think this film captures that really well with just all of these teenagers who are getting like activated for the first time, kind of having independent thought for the first time and having that confidence of like what I'm thinking right now is the first time anyone has ever come to this conclusion and it's incredibly important it's it's page 50 confidence that's it's perfectly like the, put. It's, but the, but this movie also has that energy as a byproduct of being such a young filmmaker you know yeah where he's just like i'm 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 ready to say everything right which is good that's his magic the other thing this movie has going for it is that when you watch it now anytime you're like i i don't know this feels on the nose you also have to sort of check yourself with like it's not like things aren't on the nose now like you know you can't get right, right. It, it's it's tough to it's tough to quibble with the plausibility of this movie even though there's plenty to quibble with just because there's so much of it that just seems like embarrassingly relevant but it's embarrassing that it's relevant that i guess that's my complaint to quote the zoomers that's that's the biggest cringe for me is how much Jesus. of this feels like, is this still what we're fucking dealing <laughs> right. with? You know, it's just like, it's such a bummer to watch this movie 26 years later and see how many things are just like point for point arguments that are being made and people are pushing back on saying like, why is this suddenly a thing? I mean, David, I, I've been watching all of Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, I finished it recently and got you into the idea of uh, rewatching it as well. And it is just like so depressing the episodes where feminism is at the forefront and you're just like they're presenting things as like you hear this new argument that women are making (laughs) and it just feels like verbatim the exact same wording that you would see some troll use tomorrow. I mean, it's like the same issues framed in the same way with the same pushback. Just like calling over their shoulder from the breakfast table. Honey, yeah, apparently. <laughs> I'm not saying that Michael Rappaport is the character he plays in this movie. He's certainly that is ridiculous. But when Michael Rappaport is yelling about reverse racism, like yeah. at me, you know, I'm just sort of like, yeah, Jesus Christ. Like, I can't I can't get the, I guess this is just still that's like basically a sentence I might read like in the news. 
I was more so having, I was having that moment, like, you know, the scene at the top of the stairs, like near the climax after like he gets a lucky shot in and kicks Malik down the stairs. And he's and like the way that it's framed is him standing between like the glass stained window and the and the and the oil painting of George Washington. He's just like, I'm a man. I'm I'm the man. I'm whatever. And it's just kind of like, wow. You know, he's yep. still doing the same thing on Instagram live. Yeah. And and th- there's like you have the the scene where uh uh Ice Cube what's his name? Fudge White? Yeah, Fudge Fudge. One of the all-time <laughs> great character names. After calling a character Doughboy, he calls another Ice Cube character Fudge. If I'm Ice Cube, I'm like, "John, w- what's up? <laughs> Do you have a problem with me? <laughs> Why are all my characters food?" Right, he needs to complete his Ice Cube dessert trilogy. Right. But but the, but there's the scene where he asks him about, like, what about if they they played the national anthem, would you stand? Oh. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Singleton did, like, an interview for the 25th anniversary of this movie right before he died, like, months before he died when this film was being released on Blu-ray. And he was like, I rewatched it for the first time ever, and I could not believe I had written that line into the movie. Right. You know, he's like saying that in 2019 when the Kaepernick thing is at like the forefront of the conversation. And this is 1995 before like the NFL even introduced like the the military flyover big show of like the national anthem shit, which like right. started in the mid 2000s. But it, but it's p- part of this whole fucking like America as an adolescent country for me thing where it's just like the shit resets every 10 years. You know, every 10 years, I feel like culture acts like we're having this conversation for the first time, be it any subject. Uh, And just everything in this movie feels 100% relevant to today. I mean, here's the one thing about this movie that isn't relevant, that dates it, is that the internet doesn't exist. But my take on this film is that this movie is sort of made me realize how much the internet has just become a, a global college campus. Where everyone is like, as as Mike said, I have page 50 knowledge. Everyone needs to hear my thoughts. I believe I am the most correct. You know, it's just everyone screaming at each other. Yeah, the the flattening of context. Right, right, right. That's that's all the internet is, which is, you know, college campuses are that in a microcosm, and it's a vaguely safe space intellectually because everyone is equally hormonal and ramped up, and then you leave and then you go into the real world, try to figure out how to fucking behave yourself. Uh, and the internet, everyone's just showing their ass all the time for their entire life. Higher learning. I mean, we can't go through the plot of this movie narr- like, you know, uh, front to front to finish just because like it's all over the place. But I feel like you just kind of have to tackle the characters as to talk about it. Right. Like, you know, character by character. Yeah, I think we can go like plot line by plot line. I also just, I mean, I read as many articles as I could and as many things from around the 25th anniversary and also from when he passed. And I just found so little context about the development of this movie. It's because it's the least discussed of his movies, I would say. Yeah, but all all the stuff I found was just castings that almost happened. Tupac was supposed to play Malik. He got arrested. Uh, DiCaprio was supposed to play Remy. Damn. And 
And Michael Rappaport was going to play the Cole Hauser part, which would have been disastrous. DiCaprio was supposed to play Rivi? Like, yeah. he was entirely yes. too pretty to be playing. Like- yes, absolutely. Too confident. Couldn't do it. I would. I agree with that, but at the same time, it is hilarious that it's like, ah, we didn't get DiCaprio. I guess let's get Michael Rappaport. <laughs> like, imagine now. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you're casting, like, Inception, and Nolan's like, okay, DiCaprio's busy. I guess call Michael Rappaport. Yes. I guess we'll just have to, you know, cast this correctly. <laughs> it's, it's just wild. Um yeah, DiCaprio only wasn't in it because uh, uh, Quick and the Dead ran over schedule, and they were both Sony movies. Uh, so it was, yeah, Rappaport had already been cast. They bumped Rappaport up to the bigger part uh, and then uh, put Cole Hauser in there. Uh, he wanted uh, Sidney Poitier to play Professor Phipps. His backup choice was Samuel Jackson. The studio wanted Fishburne. Weirdly, he didn't want Fishburne. That's interesting because Fishburne, right, you like... Makes sense. I mean, I guess he's pretty young at this time to be playing. He's playing older, right? Like, well, the thing is, what else was there around that? Because I mean, there was what else was he? Because like, is him doing the like, yeah, playing the older professor character was just kind of like you know after being in you know King of New York and well, but he's coming off his Oscar nomination though. Uh, okay, right. Okay. Okay. He, he gets the Oscar nomination in between the two Singleton movies, but also it's like with, with Singleton and Fishburne working together, there's like an interstellar time disruption where Fishburne characters keep on getting older and older, and everyone else ages appropriately. <laughs> so it's like he's playing like seven years older in Boys in the Hood. Now he's playing like twenty years older in this movie. Yeah, he's got like the light gray hair and like the like the barely there patois and like this, his horn rim glasses and the bow tie. Mr. Big Time Track Star. Huh? Yeah. Here, here's my thing. Speaking of time dilation, though, Omar Epps, mm-hmm. and this is not a criticism of anything. Omar Epps in this movie is playing a college student. He's about the right age for it. I think he's about 21 years old. Um, Five years later, he's playing yeah. a high school student in love and basketball. I know he plays... Uh, a, a you know he ages into an adult in that movie it's just funny that it's not that crazy in love and basketball no no i buy it it's i buy it in love and basketball. And it's five yeah. years after this um here's the here's the single weirdest casting t- i mean there are like so many like uh i just think this was a, a very sought after project every young actor was trying to get cast in this especially since there was the feeling of like singleton might this might be his big movie uh gwyneth paltrow uh, almost played the Christy Swanson part. Juliette Lewis almost played the Jennifer Connelly part. I think those were his first two choices. Um, uh, Drew Barrymore also was up for the um, Christy Swanson part. Vivica Fox was up for the Tyra Banks part. Uh, but this is the wildest fucking thing. Uh, he wanted originally, and I guess it was written differently, uh, Dustin Hoffman to play Professor Phipps. What? And Hoffman sat down with him and was like, I, this is, I have some story notes. And the story notes were the whole movie should be about the mentor relationship between the teacher and the student. <laughs> you should get these subplots out of here. Um, but I found, I found one thing, which is interesting. Uh, uh, Jonathan Demi is the one who, when Boys in the Hood was in pre-production at Columbia in pre-production, and I guess maybe he just had buzz around him. 
uh, Demi wanted to make a movie about racial issues on a college campus. So he asked Singleton to come up with a script for him. And they were developing the movie together at Orion. And then that fell apart when Orion fell apart. So I think by the time Boys in the Hood's come out, Poetic Justice has come out, he's had this in the back pocket a little bit. He never wrote a full script, but I think he had started incubating it. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, but yes, let's, let's go through uh, uh, character by character, thread by thread now. Okay, sure. So uh, the movie's called Higher Learning because it's set at a learning institution, a higher learning institution. That's should, all I got. Should I do the, should I do the thing? Should I, from, from, from in the movie? Do it. Please. <laughs> what is high? What is higher? What is to learn? What is higher learning? It is Eurocentric indoctrination. It is learning in an environment that is mostly white. What is it? What is higher learning? Okay, I think I'm done. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it's set at a fictional college. Um, you've got, well, uh, you know, you've got Omar Epps as Malik Williams, who's a uh, athletic scholarship. He's a he's a track star. He's a, he's a, he's a runner. There's a whole thing early where he's is he on a partial or full scholarship? Like okay, I, that so whole that whole plot early is kind of bizarre. Here's how I read that situation, and the thing is that like it's just not a thing that can happen. Like <laughs> like it's just right. not a thing that like it's not would happen to uh, an incoming like prospect like that. So Omar Epps is like, you know, Mr. Hot shit, freshman track star, um, you know, supposed to boost the teams four by four time. Anyway, like he shows up with, with sunglasses on the first day of practice and not his, his, his track spikes. And he's not like dressed for shit. And the coach like gives him a talking to sends him back to his dorm. And then all of a sudden he's on a partial scholarship. And this is kind of like, I just don't see that being like, nobody would be able to fuck with your money like that. Like just that, that's yeah, that's, that's what I couldn't track. Uh, no pun intended is, uh, was he on a partial scholarship to begin with? And he's trying to work his way up or was he on a full scholarship? And then the coach knocked him down to partial because he showed up lazy the first day. I mean, either way, it's like it doesn't come back. And also he doesn't get a job. So I guess it just I, I assume that he got back onto a full scholarship after he, you know, came back to practice and got his act yeah. right. But but he's he's like a very uh, uh, curious, strong minded young dude who I think kind of not, not I think he resents the fact that he's there on any sort of athletic scholarship, that that's the perception that people have of him and he wants to sort of grow intellectually. That's, that's his main thrust, right? He's looking to get activated here and he does not want to be pigeonholed as an athlete uh, and to have that be his only worth in the eyes of, of the university. Right. Well, yeah, it's like he... Uh, kind of like he's the character that finds himself through 
vehement, vociferous rejection of the labels that people force onto him, foist onto him, I guess. It's like he said he has a lot of lines like, I ain't no dumb athlete. You know, why are you busting my balls about? Obviously, I wrote this paper. I worked really hard on it. Why can't you accept that? Right. He basically immediately runs into Professor Phipps, the Lawrence Fishburne character, who first chews him out publicly for not paying his college bill, which like you would just get fired for. Yeah. I mean, like that. that's just that's just not happening. Right. I just let me read off the list. Right. Of every student who has any sort of unpaid balance on their tuition, out them in front of all their classmates and tell them no free rides here. Yeah. This is your first lesson in politics. It's just, it's just wild behavior. <laughs> it's not really. Right. It's, it's wild behavior. I mean, I get, you know, Phipps is supposed to be the sort of like inherently conservative kind of edgy person. Like that's like, you know, but. There's this edge to his arc with Malik that is, I'm going to invoke ER two episodes in a row. Omar Epps has a huge run on ER right after this movie, playing a doctor who Dr. Benton, Eric LaSalle's character, is really hard on. Um, and the sort of unspoken thing is that Benton is like being hard on him because he's black. And Benton has that kind of chip on his shoulder of like, you need to, you know, prove yourself and like uh like ex, you know you got you got to be better than everyone else and all that and i feel like that's sort of what's going on here too the the, the Malik Phipps relationship i feel like much like a lot of things in this movie is interesting gets kind of dropped and then when it's picked up at the end i did feel like i was missing a reel slightly because he's like oh now i really believe in you and i'm like what it took Tyra Banks getting shot for you to believe in him it took some fridging for that to happen. Like, it's just... It, it's, yeah. Fishburne's performance is also kind of odd. I, I couldn't totally figure it out. I don't know how much of it is just that Fishburne is one of those people who has such an iconic voice that to hear him affect any kind of accent sets off some bullshit alarms. It's hard to accept him sounding different, you know? Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, but, but I mean, yes, he, the relationship is like, honestly, the relationship is plainly paternal. It's not like it's not the he doesn't take the role of like an educator. He's not a friend. He's not a confidant. He's not any of those things. And the thing is that you get the sense that like Malik's character needs just to be told that he's not crazy and nobody can do that for him. And the one person that can dies at the end of the movie, like, which is like. Why it's like it's and it's just like and the other person, the next closest person tells him, like, I don't know why you're looking at me. You got you got to figure out what to do with your life. <laughs> the, the scene that feels like it should be the linchpin to me weirdly is and, and Singleton uses this trick a couple times where the camera moves back and forth in coverage between two characters and then the second person, in the conversation changes. Right. I mean, obviously, there's the whole. Uh, uh, Connolly Swanson uh, uh, Styles love scene that's like the three of them switching places but there's that scene where it starts out with Omar Epps and Phipps talking and then turns into Swanson and Phipps and it, it feels like that's the scene that should be getting at something in what is the subtle difference in how he relates to her yes because he's very much trying to argue to Malik like I don't view you as special. 
I am not holding you to a different standard. I am not trying to teach you a lesson because you're black. I am not trying to be a mentor figure for you. I am unwavering. This is my philosophy. This is how I teach. But it does feel that he is more openly dismissive of her, whereas he's perhaps a little more antagonistic with Malik in a way that gets something out of him, you know? Yeah, that scene with Christy Swanson is interesting because he seems to be saying that she just wrote him a Wikipedia article. I will say right. he's like, your your piece needs an argument. She's like, well, what about objectivity? And I'm like, did she literally just like write down the facts of some sort of moment in political history? <laughs> so his critique of her is pretty fair. If that is sure. what happened, yes. I will say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's, it is, uh, like his relationship with Malik is more antagonistic. And those are just like, you meet people like along your journey, uh, to, uh, like, you know, like along your, like, along the sort of journey, like in college, you meet these types of characters that just like want, to they want you to know that they understand what you're going through, but that they also don't care because no one else does. Right, right. It's and it's just like you don't have like you would say that those people are like uh important figures in your life, maybe, but you wouldn't say that they're special to you. They just are. They were there. Something for you to like reflect off of. But it also feels like Malik is like is challenging Phipps to be special to him, you know? Yeah. Like, w- yeah. Whether, whether it's as an antagonist or a mentor, he wants it to mean something. And Phipps is kind of like, I'm just some fucking teacher. You're one student in my class. I don't give a shit. You know, you have, I have no personal connection to you. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, really? And the thing is, that, like, that is life. <laughs> But also, like, not at all what Malik needs. Like, he doesn't just need to hear run faster. But that's what he gets, and that's what he does at the end of the movie. Yeah, and, and I mean, these first uh, three Singleton movies, like, you know, have a lot to do with fatherhood and the roles of, of fathers in shaping young lives. And this is a movie where you don't see parents at all. The only real parent you have invoked in a meaningful way is Remy's dad when he talks about his upbringing. But I feel like it, that's the thing he's getting at here is Malik struggling to form some kind of, uh, you know, paternal relationship with with Phipps. In one way or another, he wants him to function that way, either as a character who challenges him to, you know, feel like he needs to overcome the low expectations or someone who guides him, but he wants him to have some meaning in his life. Yeah, well, I would, I would kind of like challenge that there's no parents in the movie. There's, because like, it's like you said, like, uh, like Malik is looking for a father in Phipps. He also kind of looks for a father in Fudge. Like Christy True. looks for, um, like to be reparented by Jennifer Connelly's character the same way that Remy ends up with Nazi. It's just like looking for some, like this is, you just get out into like, you get after like the no parent sugar high wears off. It's just like, Oh, I actually need somebody to help me figure out what I'm supposed to do tomorrow. (laughs) 
that's no, that's a good point. It's it's that it's this one is more about surrogate parental figures, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. like Poison the Hood is so much about how much his life is defined by the fact that his father is there and guiding him and placing these ideas in his head in this sort of way. And poetic justice is so much about Lucky coming around to taking on his responsibility as a father. And then this movie is people just searching for someone to fill that role for them in some kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, the arc of Malik as an athlete is kind of strange, too. I think, I think the arc of his discomfort with his, his role in the university is well done. The thing that's a little confusing to me is how good is he at running or not? Because okay. they start off the movie by being like, you think you're hot shit, but you can't come in like this all cocky. You're going to need to actually work. And he's like, I'll work so fucking hard. And then he tries his hardest and he comes up short. And everyone's like, you're the weakling. I, I think it's this. But that's like, I would also think that that's honest about like, if you play a sport at college, it's like, you're the best from your hometown. Sure. But like, you know, like he says the first day of practice, like there's five other people that like on their day can whoop your ass out here by like a few strides. Like, so you're going to have to be on it like every day. And then you are. And then, you know, the same shit that happens with sports that always happens. It's like, you know, the scales are tipped into or out of your favor by a capricious trickster god. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, that's probably my complete naivete when it comes to sports showing, uh, but th that all makes sense to me. But yeah, I like, but it is, it's also like, you know, I, you, it's very difficult to understand exactly what kind of role like sports plays in like Malik's like overall campus life, like. The way that he apportions his time doesn't make sense, but really, you know, I don't know. I, I think that it does well to tell you, like, how he, it's good at, ex, it's, a, it's a good vehicle to explain, like, how he deals with disappointment, like, early on. Right. Yeah, it, it just, at a certain point, it feels like it shifts all its focus away from the athletics themselves and just yeah. that plot line becomes represented through the the deja relationship yeah it's just kind of like it really does, that is how the how it works in the movie is that like he just kind of goes from being on the track team to i have deja practice every day <laughs> right right it's deja practice and it's like intellectual sparring about their their roles yeah i mean like it's it's kind of like she is the first, well, okay. So up to that point, he's like suffering all these microaggressions and taking everything super personally and getting all worked up. And then she's like the first person in the movie, not to say that like, you know, uh, these, these microaggressions are never going to stop and you might as well just get used to it. And, you know, nobody cares like Phipps does. And then, you know, not getting like, jabbed by everybody else in the movie like she's just like you know it's not that deep and you need to get over yourself <laughs> <laughs> which is like you know somebody has to say it in the movie <laughs> it's just that you know and yeah it is sort of like she is just kind of like you should only be as angry as it is useful 
And then after that, you need to let it go. Can we do a little Tyra Banks sidebar? Sure. Because just the process of watching this movie made me start thinking about her in a deeper level. She she is almost a good actor, I would argue. She's coming into this off of the Fresh Prince is her only acting role, right? Like, that's the only other acting she's done. She's obviously been modeling since she was right, like a teenager, you know, so, you know. But this is her first movie. And I feel like in the 90s, there was this perception of like, oh, she seems like one of the models who might actually be able to transition to being an actor. And it never really took. But she she like it always felt like she was on the precipice of being good, you know, and I wonder just to some degree, I feel like every model who has successfully become a movie star was never super famous as a model with someone like Charlize where you're like they modeled and then they became an actor, but they didn't have a real reputation as a model to overcome. Whereas Tyra Banks might have just been too fucking famous to ever be able to accept her playing a normal person in a movie, especially when she wasn't like transcendently talented. Yeah, I don't know. Do you have Tyra takes, Micah? I mean, she I like her, but she became this like weird mogul. Yeah, my Tyra takes all have to do with America's Next Top Model. Like, I, well, this like, is my thing, because then, right, by the 2000s, it's like America's Next Top Model and the talk show. But it feels like that was her shifting because the the acting didn't stick. This does like feel like out of phase with like my cultural cachet for like Tyra Banks. Like it's this definitely like more of like a serious vibey role than like anything else I've ever seen. But I'm also like not well versed in all Tyra movie stuff, you know, like it's just but I mean. Then again, I also can't think of a counterpoint to a really famous model that then had a really right? successful acting career. It was it was just that was the 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 thought spiral I started going into. Is just like I feel like everyone who successfully transitioned from being a model to being an actress as much as that's thought of as a pipeline is someone where a decade into their career people have to be reminded that they modeled as opposed to someone like Kate Upton, where you're just like, well, that's Kate Upton in a movie. Yeah, I mean, she is on the cover of uh, the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue next the next mm. year after this movie. She's the first black model to do that. I yeah. feel like that's the point at which she is a, a sort of inescapable superstar in that world. Right. And it's kind of like, okay, well, you're on that track. And when, you know, she does a couple of movies, she pops up in Love and Basketball. Obviously, she's in Coyote Ugly. Right. Um, but like, I do feel like when when she's in America's Next Top Model, it's you know when they're when they're crafting that around her, it's like yeah, well, because you are one of the iconic models of the '90s, so you make so much sense for this, and because you've been on camera and done movies, yeah, you know, you know, you know how to have a personality on screen, like you know, you're, you'll be perfect for this, which she is. She's completely Im- she's terrible for the 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 talk show was the disaster. Where she has this sort of th- thinking like, of like, right, I can be the next great media personality. And it's sure. like, no, Tyra, you're not <laughs> that, like, magnetic. That, that, that's too far. But, you know. But there was something both on America's Next Top Model and on the talk show that was chaotic about her. 
She's very chaotic. She's only gotten more chaotic. Yes. I would say. I, I just think it's interesting where it's like, it's higher learning. Love stinks, which sucks and is four years later. The then she does Love in Basketball. Yeah, horrible movie with a, another uh, a Bridget Wilson Sampras movie. Uh, then 2000 is Love and Basketball, Life Size Coyote Ugly. You know, where it's like Life Size and Coyote Ugly are obviously the two that people actually remember her being in. Love and Basketball is a tiny role, but in a great movie. Then 2002 is Halloween Resurrection. And then the next year is America's Next Top Model. And like a year or two after that, she's on the show. And from that point on, she pretty much only does cameos as herself in things. She just becomes like, I'm a personality. Yeah, she's I, she's not bad in this movie. She's not I don't bad. know. I, for like a yeah. first performance, she is very close to being good in this thing. She's like, she's functional. It's a, it's. It's in some ways, it's a it's kind of a thankless role because she has to shoulder a lot, but is not really given any agency. It feels like she should be the fourth major character in the sort of four square of of Remy, uh, you know, Swanson, uh, Malik, and and maybe her. But yeah, but she's just kind of like an in person crit. Like she's an in person critic. She's the voice of reason. Like, and right. that's all she gets. She's to the be. voice of reason until she has to die. And then when yeah. she dies, she is the innocence lost. Like, and that's kind of like, all right. So, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So, moving on, let's talk about Christy Swanson, another okay. 90s uh, icon who does not translate past the 90s. But uh, Christy Swanson is uh, Kristen. A very, I mean, how do you, she's kind of just like a naive kind of doe, you know, like, you know, like, uh, what do you call it? Like, sort of, she's a Rachel in the woods, baby in the woods. Yeah, she's She's a Rachel. Yeah. It's, 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 she's, she's from Orange County and she's, you know, affable and like is gaping at all the horseless carriages. She's and and just kind of overly naive. Yes. She's a pretty big, yeah, she's a pretty big name at this point, right? Would would you say? I mean, she's been in a lot of stuff. She's one of right. I mean, she's like Buffy is three years before this. I mean, she's like working regularly in lead or you know, lead adjacent roles. She's she's in she's, stuff like the chase and like the program and like these sort of like Movies for young adults, like teenagers and college students and stuff like that. Obviously, she first popped up in the in the John Hughes movies. But right. Like, yeah, yeah, she's this is this is like the end of her peak. Like after this, it's the Phantom and eight heads in a duffel bag. And then she's kind of a joke. Yeah. When she's in Big Daddy, it's weird. I was going to say that then it becomes like, oh, she's like a weird punchline stunt casting. Um and also at that point, by the point she's in Big Daddy, Buffy is now a hit on television and it feels like she's a weird trivia fact. Yeah. I mean, what's she doing now? Oh, she's a Republican. Oh, apparently, apparently she loves. <laughs> I had no idea. Christy. Yeah, David, this is this is my virtual background. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Well, with with Rappaport. Right. Yeah. Christy Swanson and, and Rappaport went after each other on YouTube. I mean, this is not a long walk from her character in this movie to where she's at in present day. <laughs> no, you know? no, right. no. She's a she's a she's a crazy person. And Rappaport, uh, anti, and uh, they were they were fucking feuding. 
Rappaport, for all his flaws, is is essentially uh, he's just like an embarrassing MSNBC dad at heart. Really, like that is his his online energy. I guess it's so complicated. <laughs> I guess it is. I got, I. I <laughs> I know he's like the blackest man in America, self-professed or whatever. He just, I, I mean, it's, it's more common. Like he, he's just, uh, we don't, if I, if I speak, I am in big trouble. If I, if I speak, I am in big trouble. I, it, it's, it, the Rappaport knot is just like so hard to, to, to pull at these days. He just, he just should have less to say about black people is all. You know, he should have less to say about everything. I do think he never got over the idea that in the early 90s, a couple black people told him he was cool. Like that feels like it doomed Michael Rappaport, you know, we and now we got to fucking hear about it for the rest of time. It's just like we got like it's just, <laughs> you know, in this movie, this it, it was just like, you know, because he was he was in a John Singleton movie and then he did the Tribe Called Quest doc. And now we got to hear about right. what he has to fucking say about hip hop every two weeks. And it's just like, you know, if I had a time machine after I killed baby Hitler, I would punt, <laughs> I would I would literally punt the 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 like the first cut. I mean, the final cut of the the the, the tribe doc into the sun. And like ask somebody else to fucking like, you know, do it like so that we never had to because it's just like it's enough, man. It's enough. It, it's it's the Neil Brennan thing where it's like, have you guys right. not heard? I, I've been given the pass, you know, it just feels like he's constantly trying to restate his bona fides that he's allowed to enter conversations like he's a leader of black thought. Oh, he's just such a first time, long time ass motherfucker. Like <laughs> that is such a good description. <laughs> yes, but he is so fucking well cast here and so effective in this movie. Like I was going into this sort of guarded and cringing of like, I don't want to fucking watch the Michael Rappaport gets radicalized by neo-Nazis and becomes a school shooter arc. But I think he plays this character better than most people do. And this obviously becomes more of an archetype right after this. I mean, you go like, this is four years before Columbine. Uh, you know, at this point, the main thing that the shooting is riffing on in this movie is like the the Texas shooting in the 70s. Uh-huh. He is, like, he's really good in this movie because it's, he's able to go from seeming incredibly small to something like incredibly like gangly and unpredictable and maybe even a little scary. Like I th I'm thinking about yeah. like the earlier scenes where he's just kind of like, you know, swaying around milling about on the, on the walls, like trying to talk to like one person, literally anybody at the party about nothing at all, yeah. just to feel like, you know, Hey, it, like I'm in this room with the rest of these people too, to like how disgusted you are by him reading like the foreword of, of, uh, of mind comfort, whatever the fuck it is he's reading in his room. To when he's to disgust you feel when he gets up in Malik's face and then the satisfaction you feel when he backs down. But then like the weird like sort of um, like pity slash maybe even like the fright that you feel when he's like destroying the entire dorm room because it's just like there's a gun in there somewhere. <laughs> 
the like as the performance is like really volatile and that's like why it's so good, I guess. I also just feel like after this, as loner who may or may not become a school shooter becomes a bigger archetype in films in America. And a bit of a cliche, like almost like a weird sort of comedy cliche in a kind of a sad way. Right. I feel like there's a tendency for actors to play them like they're the Joker. You know, it's just like way too mannered. They're putting way too much in the bag. And I think the thing that they don't get that Rappaport weirdly gets totally right is is what you said, Micah, how small he is, you know, that this guy's issue. Yeah, it's, a, it's an implosion when he when he when he becomes a shooter. Yeah, right. This guy's issue is that he's invisible. He so badly wants to get any reaction out of anybody, you know, to be able to actually engage with people because and it. Yeah, like when he's the the things that like because he comes to this big college campus from wherever the fuck it was in the woods where his dad taught him how to shoot. And what are the things that you would say defines him as a person or like his hobbies or his interests are doomsday prepping and Megadeth and like the, the the like the the Venn diagram for those two things at a normal college campus. You're not gonna catch like a whole lot of people and it's just like you know not that there aren't people that like megadeth and like probably carry around hunting knives on campus but like it's gonna take you a while to find those people and he just has no social intelligence whatsoever Whatsoever. right i mean there's that early scene where he goes to the party and it's that really embarrassing thing that you like we've all witnessed before where like someone just earnestly walks up and goes like hey how's it going and people just respond and go like social awareness on E, bro. It is like right, right. What? <laughs> hey, how's it going? Like his energy is just so off-putting the fuck that his do you like mean? yeah, yeah. It's... Basic pleasantries are like, what the fuck did you say to me? <laughs> exactly. He, he just yeah, he can't find a way to get his foot in the door even to make small talk. Yeah, I want to know if you guys had this experience with him. Michael Rappaport, maybe I'm just so used to him now. And also it's the fact that he has the straight hair in this movie. And I think of him obviously with like the curly hair, but he's just like, he's jowly and he's bigger. And I don't even, I just, you know, that's just age, but like, he's so kind of angular and his nose is very pronounced that when I was watching this movie, I was like, is this, who's this guy who looks like Michael Rappaport is a thought I had for a second. Yeah, I was so struck by how, alien he looks in this movie in a good way he's kind of unsettling before he cuts his hair honestly when he shaves his hair you're like okay i get it he's i'm sure he's a skinhead now right but like you know i was just that was like whatever but it's just kind of he's kind of he's he's very striking in this movie and he also is a guy who very often plays very slight variations on himself right Yeah, usually he's right. Some aggro New York guy. Right. People are hiring him to do the Michael Rappaport thing. Except for when he was an alligator poacher from like from from Florida and and justified. (laughs) He was good in that. Yeah, he was good in that. It was. Yes. He like it was that that shit was fun. Yeah. The best show, the most unheralded show of the golden age of television is Justified. One of the great shows of all time. Not nearly discussed enough. Mostly remembered, I feel like, for just like 
Timothy Oliphant is hot. Margot Martindale wins an Emmy. You know what I mean? Like people don't talk about Justified. Justified rules. Yeah, but nobody nobody fucking talks about the, like the, uh, Deputy Tim Gutterson, uh, who yeah. like like his fucking arc is incredible. Like the fact that he may or may not be you know working out some uh, repressed homosexuality and he drinks about it all the time and like it's I, that show's good. I love that show. I just think uh, Rappaport is giving a, a pretty canny performance where he avoids all the pitfalls that actors usually fall into with these parts. I chief among them, I think is just overloading the shit with mannerisms, you know, and, and ticks and business and whatever. And it's like, no, he understands that this guy needs to be like paper. He, yeah, it's, it's, he doesn't try to do too much with it, which like, which it's crazy to say yeah. that Michael Rappaport is doing like, did, did well because restraint like that's crazy it's showing supreme judgment in a very volatile political movie it's like you can't believe you're giving him that compliment but yeah he he does it really really fucking well and i also think the performance is devoid of any kind of self-pitying but in the process it makes the character more tragic not in a way where you feel bad for him necessarily but where you're just like this is what such a, waste. a predictable yeah. cycle. Right, right. I mean, the moment when Cole Hauser comes up behind him, that scene is so well directed where they hold off. It's also just the exact uh, cycle we see play out uh, before us now uh, with, with how these groups uh, recruit people, you know? I mean, it's just like that, that Cole Hauser scene is so well done of just here's this guy sitting outdoors reading a book on steps at night. And they just like, bingo, here we go. This guy's so ready to be turned into a Nazi. This guy is just filled with rage and sadness. What are you reading? The Odyssey? A lot of of battles in that book, right? And it's just like, oh my God. (laughs) Right, and and they stay on the back of Cole Hauser's head for so long. It makes him feel like such an ominous, malicious presence where you just know something's fundamentally wrong here and also who is this guy why is he so interested there there could be no good coming of this you know and now this shit just happens in chat rooms instead of on campuses yes yeah right you you look for the shit posters yeah this is the shit with this movie though like where like when cole hauser shows up out of the shadows and he's like hello i'm like Oh, well, come on, man. But then I'm also like, yeah, well, I also know that's sort of like a thing that goes on. You know, like, I can't object to the... (laughs) That's all they are now. It's, well, the thing is, it is like one of of those grace notes that makes the film, like, feel as prescient, like, however many years later. Um, Like, those notes, like, it does, like, the fact that it's just Cole Hauser and then the group of people like just kind of like apparate out of the dark and they're like, yeah, you know, like let's go get a drink together. And you know, you know that that's something's off there. There's also one of the, one of the scenes I keep thinking about is like when, and maybe we're, I'm getting a little ahead of our thing here, but like when, when Christy, when, when Kristen's like, when she's stepping up to the podium to like, you know, give a speech about her, about surviving uh, her assault. Like the way that it's shot is like the podium looks like a cliff and mm. 
on the other side of it, like because it's all these people, like these women holding these 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 picket signs and screaming like you know dead men don't rape this then the other thing, and it's just kind of like okay, nobody here is actually there specifically for Kristen except for Jennifer Connelly's character. Everybody right. else is here exercising something. So, like, it's, like, a really important note that the, the podium looks like a cliff because you're just stepping up to whatever this is, and on the other side of it is just the unknown. You don't know if, like, it's actually acceptance or understanding or any of these other things, like, which is a thing I've thought a lot of. But, like, you know, because it's, like she was saying earlier in the movie when Jennifer Connelly's character is just trying to like get her to report it. She's just like, well, nothing is going to happen anyway. These people are just going to make me feel bad about it. Right. It feels preemptively futile to even try to do anything about it, to even try to reach out to anyone else. And even like the, the scene after she is assaulted, uh, the, the thing that triggers the sort of sense of retaliation isn't, her assault it's it's the the, you black bitch on the phone oh my god i've like yeah yeah that like regina king we gotta regina (laughs) that scene is and the thing is that like it's such a great moment of relief after after that after the assault scene is that she goes and she's crying and like Regina, she's just like i finished my paper early i'm about to like you know i'm all early so on so on and like Billy calls and she's just like, put her on the phone, you black bitch. She's like, <laughs> and then she checks the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, we could go whoop this guy's ass right now. Like, um, and yeah, but I mean, like, obviously nothing that follows has anything to do with Kristen. But yeah, I like that weird irony. Yes, the interesting nuance of the scene for me is that she goes there with them, right? Which you don't feel like was her choice. You have to imagine Regina King dragged her. She is still in absolute shock. She is pretty much still shaking, right? She's wrapped up in a blanket. They bring her with this whole, like, squad, right? There are, like, 10, 15 people. They they just really just, like, you know, I mean, honestly, they've been waiting to whoop on, like, a Billy because and because and like because because Billy's have been running around like showing their ass like for however long Ice Cube has been in school and he's just like we got a yes. reason now yeah right right and and uh, you know when they're holding him to the ground you know like threatening to punch his face in they say like apologize to her you know apologize to that beautiful black woman and he, he says like I'm sorry I'm sorry Christy I'm sorry and just looking at it kind of shell shocked. And then they don't invoke her, you know? They don't say apologize to her. Well, because they don't know. You know, she doesn't say anything. Right, right. But it just so quickly becomes something else. And then, you know, she sees Bridget Wilson Sampras and her other friend there uh, who kind of like are just confused why she caused all this drama and then go back inside the house. You know, she's sort of being completely ignored in all of this when she's truly the center of it. Just to invoke Leonardo DiCaprio one more time, J.R. Ferguson, who plays Billy, best known as Stan from Mad Men these days, well, I would say. But David, I don't think that's really his best known credit. We know what his real best known credit is. Tell me. Founding member of the Pussy Posse. 
Right. Okay. Yes. I, for a second, I thought you were going to bring up that he's on the Connors. That's the only other curveball I was because I know you love the Connors. Yes, but I mean, I love Stan. I love you know Jr. For but yes, yes, a a a a forgotten member of of Leonardo DiCaprio's Pussy Posse is yes, Jr. Ferguson. Pussy anyway. Posse emeritus. Uh, yes. Uh, Ice Cube punches him in this movie. <laughs> um, I just can't believe that's a thing that we have to seriously refer to. It's a th- it's a thing. It's a part of Hollywood history that we have to just be like uh, the uh, pussy posse. Uh-huh. Maybe maybe the fourth time we've had no choice but to bring it up on this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> it gives me no joy to mention that, of course, he was a founding member of the pussy posse. I, I gotta say, I, Ice Cube rules in this movie. I, it's partly that he's playing a character who just kind of swings in and out and isn't as yeah. affected by the sort of like melodramatic plotting of the movie. Like He's kind of the Wooderson, right? I mean, he gets to just be the guy who's just like on his own fucking wavelength running his own thing. Yeah. And he's funny and he's smart and he's kind of, you know intimidating and he's interesting and like I feel like he's just like I get I get what I need to do in this movie very much this is the year he's in Friday as well and it's just like Ice Cube is a movie star I know this is not news he gets such a movie star introduction too I mean you go through that party and you make your way out to the back and you only see him from behind and it's just watching him roll while everyone else is in rapt attention and you keep yeah. on cutting to just reaction shots over his voice, different angles, the, of the back fist of the head. Afro pick. And it was just like, right. yo man, uh, can you turn the, can you like, I got class in the morning. He was just like, it's over when it's over. That's his first line. Right. It's that's, over that's, it's yes. Over. That's the first moment he turns around. You see his face, but they're just, they tease it out for so long. Cause Singleton's like, you know, this is ice cube and you know that ice cube is a movie star. Now <laughs> we're going to treat him with that respect. And, you know, Ice Cube wrote Friday on Singleton's advice. Singleton was like, look, if you can write a record, you can write a movie. You should just do it. Like, yeah, like they are still very much like um, twinned here. And I'm trying to think, do they have I don't does Ice Cube do another Singleton movie? I think this is it. Right. Yeah, that's too bad. This is it. And he Singleton had said that, like, Tupac was the guy he wanted to be his the De Niro to his Scorsese that he wanted to keep working with. Uh, and yeah, he wrote Malik for Tupac and then he also wrote Baby Boy for Tupac. Um, and it, it, Tyrese just becomes his fucking muse for the last half of his career. Yep. Tyrese is in like the, the three of his three movies in Tyrese a row. Movies? Yeah. 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 But, but Tyrese totally becomes his guy. Uh, but yeah, Cube is, uh, unreal in this movie. He's so fucking good. Yeah. He is. He's great. I mean, Micah, maybe you completely disagree. Maybe you think Cube is so cheesy in this movie. Oh, no, 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 no. I think that, like, it's really, uh, like, you know, I I also like the fact that, like, Singleton just kind of pokes fun at his character. uh, Like, although he gets to be, like, this cool, interesting, intimidating, whatever type of character, he's still a sixth year senior you know nobody knows why like if he ever goes to class you know nobody knows how he pays for anything that's what's great is that like he's like he's like he's like the center of radical thought on this campus but also he's kind of bluto blutovsky you know like i was like what's the what does he do anything what's his deal 
It's, it, you just get the sense that like he's read all of these books, but hasn't interrogated anything that he's read from them sometimes like, or, or is like still in the process of like, you know, I don't know. You get the sense that like ice cubes characters in this movie, if he read a different book at a different time, he'd be a different person. I also think that uh, this is sort of a guy who, if he were more careerist, would go like, oh, I should become a professor because clearly I thrive in campus life. But instead, he's just like like on some sort of T.A. track thing. And like instead he's but like he's too angry still. Right. Right. And and he he, he's too uh, sort of skeptical of the institutions. And uh, so instead, he's just like a a super student, a perma student. Who also just casually sort of like slides off lessons to people who walk by him. And Buster Rhymes is there just kind of chilling with him at all times. I was going to say, Buster Rhymes hired just to be able to throw in some big supporting screams when he needs to. <laughs> Buster Rhymes in the background would be like, I'm gone, nigga, I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I know he'd been like popping up doing like guest appearances popping up like he's about to be a thing right like you know the first album is like the next year i think yeah this is early for him right like he before then it's uh what's it called leaders of the new school or whatever his uh yeah his his early group um very much enjoy buster rhymes energy just a lot of energy in general in this movie which I appreciate. One of the guys in the skinhead gang is Andrew, um, what's his name, Brinarski, who like plays Leatherface. You know, just like what I like. I just where like I just feel like Singleton was just like, just give me the largest white man you can find. Like this crew just has one guy who's two guys. <laughs> he let yeah, one guy that looks like he ate the next like largest guy. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. just, and he just has like massive rings on every finger, and he's just kind of like, Yeah, white power. And it's like he's just constantly pink. Like it's really he's a very unsettling, like yeah, what's his character's name? Nako. His name is Nako. His name yeah. his name is Nako. He should just be like in the bleachers at a Yankee game getting really pumped up, you know, about Bernie Williams, but instead he got lo- he's in this fucking garage. <laughs> you oh fuck, you know like the like he has you remember uh fuck, what was that um Oh, like Bruno. You remember like the like the part of Bruno where they go like the MMA match and there's the one guy that they keep panning back to who's like losing his fucking mind on the front row. And then like Sasha Bruno and then like the guys start making out at center and like in center ring and he just like starts screaming, No (laughs) Yeah, he just like like, short circling. Yeah, and it's just like that is Nako's energy in this movie. Is that the first Bruno shout out on the podcast? I feel like that's a first for the for blank check. I, I feel like I may be brought up because I've always been of the opinion that Bruno was better than Borat. But now I think Borat 2 is better than either. Fair enough. But but I rewatched the whole Baron Cohen canon before Borat 2, and I still contend that Bruno is better than Borat. I rarely take out that opinion because it is not liked. Um, I just want to say I went to... Uh, Andrew uh, Brinarski's uh, Wikipedia to look up his character name before you guys said it. Nako. And I, 
Well, yes. So I see here that his name is Nako, but I was looking at classic Wikipedia filmography grid and I accidentally looked one up on the spreadsheet. Oh, that's right. I, I thought his character's name was Zangief. And then I realized, <laughs> no, he just played Zangief. Wait, he's he played Zangief, Zangief in, in the, in the he's Street Zangief Fighter movie? Street Fighter. But I was just like, man, that's the a God little... awful Street Fighter movie? Yes, one, yes, but like, he, he's... Yes, yes, he's literally Zangief. And I read this and I went, well, that's a little on the nose that Singleton just named this character Zangief. Zangief. <laughs> but it's like, no, first he played Zangief, then he played Nako. He also, I didn't realize this, he plays uh, uh, Christopher Walken's son in Batman Returns. He's Christopher Walken's large adult son doing a Christopher Walken impression in that movie. Oh, sure. Chip Shrek. Wow, this guy's got a career. Also, I mean, the only other thing on this Wikipedia page is he got in a huge fight with Texas Chainsaw fans when he he got apparently he had beef with the original Leatherface with Gunnar Hansen, who who they would get like in fight at cons or something. Wow. You see in this? He like cheered his death on Facebook. <laughs> I have to read this. I have to read this verbatim. Gunner Gunner Hansen, the original Leatherface, died. Brunarski on Facebook responded to the death by commenting, "Boo hoo." <laughs> <laughs> A fan said to him, "Just get ready, Micah." A fan said, "Nice of you to insult the legend that is Gunner Hansen." And Brunarski's response was. Could give zero fucks, suck his dead nuts. <laughs> yep, yep. He 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 went. He doubled down. Honestly, no no thoughts. Head empty. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. So this is this was. Then he was getting a lot of backlash to the backlash, and then this was him trying to settle the beef. He said on Facebook, "I was a big supporter of his and was cool with him. He was cool with me." Dot, dot, dot. Then he started going around to promote Chainsaw 3D and he started talking shit at cons and whatnot. Dot, dot, dot. I'm not somebody who takes shit from anybody and I tell it like it is. I originally posted a Facebook comment that said boo hoo. Yes. No tag. Just by itself. Read into it what you will. I never wished for his death or suffering from pancreatic cancer, which I didn't even know he had. Let's make that a bigger issue upon his sudden death. Cancer sucks worse than haters. Y'all have a nice day. Cancer sucks worse than haters. I mean, the, the you're distracting from the real enemy here. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at cancer. It's cancer quite... sucks worse than haters. Andrew Vandarski. He's not that wrong. Like, honestly, honestly, you know, I, I'd like a, I'd like a, I'd like a coffee bug. Is there an Etsy shop? <laughs> yeah, cancer, cancer sucks worse than haters. Y'all have a nice day. I also think there's a real vulgar poetry to eulogizing someone by saying, could give zero fucks. Could give Suck zero fucks. Suck his dead nuts. Suck his dead nuts. <laughs> his dead nuts? I, I, it's I really, don't know, man. It's really sad that like he that uh died from like pancreatic cancer or whatever, but like, you know. I don't know why y'all are like trying to block my shine. You know, I'm just <laughs> R.I.P. to your R.I.P. to your leather face, but I'm different, bro. Okay, I've been waiting years for this moment. Don't let me distract you from the real enemy, cancer. I can't. I can't get over 
that he's Zangief. That's <laughs> the only thing I can't. I'm sorry. I'm still kind of hung up on that. Cancer sucks worse than haters. He, he's right. I'm sorry, he but he's right. right. You can't. It's an argument ender. Who's going to take the opposite <laughs> side in that battle? Uh, well, he's he plays a he plays a a dumb Nazi in this movie. That that's his role in this movie. A very pumped up Nazi. So that's another one of the major characters we've discussed. Now we've now taken Nako off the board. We've discussed. All of the major characters, really. I, Jennifer Connelly is the one that we haven't really delved into, but the movie kind of just doesn't have time for her. Like, I, I don't know how else to put it. Like, this is a weird point in her career where she's trying to get into being a grown-up actor. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like she's only, she's still best known as, like, the girl from Labyrinth. She's in The Rocketeer, but yeah. she's still kind of like a, a young teen actor type. Like, she's in teen movies, yeah. kids' movies. And like it's this, but this it's is Wilhelm the period Falls where the next year, yes. right? Inventing the Abbots, Dark City, Waking the Dead, Reckon for a Dream. Like that's her run of she starts playing hypersexualized characters because she wants to age out of being a child star, right? And but she, I guess so. I mean, she she'd already been in like the hot spot and so, but yes, absolutely. And it's also it's just like I just remember that year when she's in Waking for the Dead, Requiem for a Dream, and Pollock was the year where yeah. it's like, oh my God, like Jennifer Connelly, what a serious talent this person is. And like, she had not gotten that cred throughout the 90s. In the 90s, it was more like, oh, Jennifer Connelly, like a famously beautiful woman who was also in Labyrinth when she was younger. And uh, she's good in this. She's very striking. I, I, she has nothing to do. She's always good. I just always like Jennifer Connelly. She is one of the most... Uh, just sort of confoundingly attractive people to ever be in movies. But I also just think she's always good. She's always got a lot of integrity and presence. I, uh, you know, I mean, Singleton said that like it was three hours and they cut it down and the bulk of what got cut out was her. And that I really think she was maybe supposed to be like the fourth or fifth major character of this film. And he doesn't really delve into it in any of the interviews I read, which were all, like 25th anniversary retrospective uh, interviews he was doing when this came out on Blu-ray right before he died. But the subtext seemed to be that perhaps the thing the studio was most uncomfortable with in this entire movie full of hot button debates was homosexuality, that that was just the one bridge too far for them. Not yes. remotely surprising, I would say that that, yeah. that that totally tracks with the mid 90s where they're like, OK, come on, come on, come on. Right. Uh, which on top of the fact that it's frustrating to see her be given short shrift because she's very compelling in this movie. It also just kind of unbalances the film at large because the first half is so heavy on Swanson. Yeah. And then it feels like she kind of disappears in the second half of the movie, probably because most of her footage was with Connolly. You have to imagine. Yes. And the movie sort of turns into a school shooter movie. Like it just kind of has to be dominated by that because that's going to be so dramatic. Like, yeah. So we can, it can no longer be like us sort of like being like anyway. So, uh, Remy just, uh, basically stuck a gun in Adam Goldberg and, uh, Omar Epps's face and, and ran out of the school. So what's going on with Christy? Like, you know, like you can't, it's it'd <laughs> right, be tough right. to just kind of <laughs> like, let's, let's, <laughs> let's hit the B plot now. Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of like, Viva, let's, let's figure out what's happening with Christy's sexual awakening. You know? <laughs> right. 
I, I do think that love scene is pretty skillful and interesting. It's very interesting to the point where you're yeah. like, oh, is half of this a fantasy and half a reality? Like, like that's initially what I was wondering. Like, is she with Jason Wiles, but thinking about Jennifer Connelly? And it's like, yes. no, she's just kind of doing both. And it's, it's well presented. The problem I have with it more is like, it's happening at a point in the movie where I'm like, I'm not sure where I am with her character, with Christy, Kristen, sorry, Christy Swanson. And I, and, and then it doesn't go anywhere. I, but I like the scene individually. It just, it's a narrative dead end. It, it's a good set piece. I mean, there's also, there's other interesting stuff there. Like you set up Regina King's sort of homophobia, her very casual homophobia with her, you know? She's like very much viewing their whole relationship as scants and says like, oh, thank God when she goes on the date. With, I was uh, be like, oh, I was beginning to worry about you. Yeah, right, right. Uh, David has now changed his virtual background to a picture of Zangief. Uh, it's, that's him. That's him. Yeah. This is uh, Zangief uh, telling M. Bison off camera. Uh, Boo hoo. <laughs> suck, suck my dead nuts. Suck, suck your suck my dead nuts. My dead nuts. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. kill you and then suck your dead nuts. Yes, <laughs> and you'll, you're gonna have to be happy because at least you didn't die at the hands of the real enemy, cancer. That's that's what he's saying. Wow. If honestly, I mean, it's it's probably the biggest flaw of the Street Fighter video game franchise, right? That they never made cancer a playable character. <laughs> right. Because you should, that should be the final battle sequence or whatever. It's the ultimate Street Fighter. Sure. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, no one fights more dirty than cancer. That's true. Uh, there's a history of cancer in my family. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I want to make it clear <laughs> I am not making that joke flippantly um, Yeah, me too uh, uh, Who haven't we discussed? We talk, we've, we pretty much Everyone. talked about all we the main people we, did right? everything. Yeah. The big, we just haven't talked about the, the shooting sequence, I guess The last which 30 is, minutes, yeah Yeah, I mean, there's stuff in that that's so effective And feels yeah. just kind of like completely un contemporary Like, it's mostly the stuff where the cops immediately just grab Omar Epps and start talking to Remy like he's their friend. Like, all that stuff, you're just like, yeah, unfortunately, right. this is, you know, completely on the money. Like, this doesn't feel over the top mm -hmm. at all. This doesn't, like... There's other stuff, like Tyra Banks, uh, you know, getting shot like she's Willem Dafoe in Platoon, where I'm sort of... I get I get the the the, the energy that this movie is dialed up to. But I, whatever, it sort of made me wince, like, you know, not, not in a good way. I did not feel it in the same way. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. It, it's also like, I was convinced, oh, this is how the movie's gonna end. Sure. Um, you know, with the, with the sort of, uh, Malik and, uh, uh, ship looking at each other. And then I was very disappointed that there was 10 minutes following it of characters explaining everything they're thinking. Definitely. I don't know. Michael, what do you think of the whole fucking thing? Well, I think that, um, you know, but like I agree with Griff about the fact that you know that this is where the movie is going, you know, from the moment, more or less, that Ruby takes his hat off in the library. And he's like, you know, he shaved his hair or whatever. Like, it's it's more or less like the movie has just is building momentum up to this yeah. point. 
I would even argue from the moment he opens up his shirt in the first shot, you see him. It's He's just being presented as such an epic loner. It feels kind of inevitable. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like... I mean, like the, 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 the stairwell scene that I was talking about earlier and like, you know, after like the shoot, it just has like the, like the same feeling of like night of the living dead, where you know that shit is going to go sideways, regardless of whether or not he gets his licks in and this, in the stairwell, like the cops are eventually going to show up and then what's going to happen. The, the other scene I think is really good is, uh, you know, you have uh the t-shirt confrontation right which leads to malik following him back and saying like say it you know you're not being honest with me say it which leads to him yeah it's like i i like that scene a lot because it's not like it's obviously like it's not about the t-shirt and it's not about any of the like they're both really like very incredibly anxious and like it's like both actors are also like have like the same sort of like tense breathing Mm -hmm. i am maybe as scared as you are sort of thing going on but like malik is obviously in control of the situation because you know remy is just such a wet noodle like but the it's really just like they're just angry and yeah. like, you know, you want it to be true that this person is saying this shit when you're not around. And it probably is. I mean, look at him. But like, you know, it's also like that's not what it's about right now. It's about the fact that he just got, uh, you know, I, I forget exactly what it was that happened to him immediately before, you know. Is it the scene where Cole Hauser sort of questioning his like bona fides where he starts talking about his history with guns? There are two scenes like that. Yeah, but but like the 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 T-shirt scene like is really good because like although there's all of like the racially charged stuff and like the racist stuff and all the whatever, like it really illustrates that it's more about what these individuals are bringing into the interaction, like as well. Like, and it's everything else that happened during the day also. Right. And then you have, you know, like him running out, them chasing after him, the the campus cops stopping Malik, of course, you know, Adam Goldberg mm-hmm. having to yell at them to let him go that they don't even realize they've just let, you know, a, an armed kid slip by them. And then that scene afterwards where they take out the Nazi flag. And he does those really striking shots with everyone looking at the Nazi flag and they're sort of going like, oh, look what we have here. Like kind of like half jokingly. And then they tell uh, uh, Fudge to break it up. Like that stuff is really good. That whole stretch to me is really good. The ask it like the them rolling around in the in the in the patrol cars and being like, can we see your ID? Also a good note. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But in a way, then, when it builds up to this, like, uber operatic sniper on the roof while the the Swanson event is happening and Tyra running in slow motion and everything, that feels so much less, uh, I don't know, immediate and vital to me. It feels so much more kind of uh, manufactured in its drama. Yeah, I, know the, I know what you mean, like, as it feels like after... 
like the personal things like the indignity of like not having enough swipes on your card or having like campus officers harass you or teachers speak to you in a certain way and all the stuff that feels like, you know, granulated and personal. Like this is basically like the world leveling threat. This is the energy spire of racism movies is a shooting. Like, yes. Yes. Um, like the same way that like you would you might say that like a superhero movie is also is almost like a character drama like in the first 45 minutes but they then they got to blow some shit up right uh, right then right. there has this to be a hole in the sky that they need to close yeah. or whatever yeah right as as someone described on twitter recently is is this superhero movie one of the we have to close the portal ones or one of the we have to bring the orb to the gate movies <laughs> yes 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 yeah Hundred yeah. percent. But yes, yes, it does also feel like once again, you know, the main cultural touch point for a school shooting, a campus shooting at this point, is a sniper on the roof in daylight. You know, hitting people on the on the quad and everything. It's weird to watch this now because you feel like, well, what would probably happen is Rappaport, if he gets away with the gun, then just proceeds to go from room to room and shoot people. You know. It's sort of surprising that he just kind of gets away, chills out. They follow them. They find them. They beat them up. Then there's that scene of them sort of taking their licks and getting wound up. And then they really challenge him to go do the full the full sniper thing. It feels like, I mean, this movie is pre, right, like automatic weapon, uh, Columbine, you know, like, right. It's in, more inspired by like the University of Texas shooting, right? The tower shooting, right? The classic. Mm-hmm. That, that, that. Mm-hmm. He's like the butt of jokes for for years, like dark, you know, gallows humor, right? Like, you know, be careful. He'll, you know, he'll get a rifle and climb a tower, right? That's what's so depressing is it's like that was the one big one for 20 years, you know? And now it's just like there's a new reference point every six months. I I really, and it's really like I felt like, like because I hadn't watched it in so long and I was, they have like the news Chiron at the end of, the the news hit at the end of it where they're, you know, tallying up uh, the day, like, you know, the fall of the day or whatever. And she goes like three dead and one injured or whatever. And like, it was the most ashamed I felt in a, in a while that I was just like, well, three dead and one injured. That's not that bad. Yeah. (laughs) Is sure. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a very depressing thought. It, it It is odd. You brace yourself. When he gets up there, you're like, oh, my God, he's about to kill 15 people. You know, it, it is odd how much of a relief it feels like to watch it today and only have three people get gunned down, which is a horrifying beyond yeah. bleak. Um, but that's I mean, I don't know. That's all the the potency of this movie for me combined with the fact that it is someone who is just not filtering themselves you know it's it's a movie that comes out of like like this is like his mother or whatever right like this is like the primal scream blank check movie mm-hmm. where it's like i'm just gonna be so fucking angry and just say everything i have to say and i feel like as much as this film is messy in the way those films often are it's it's points are just so um uh tragically uh potent still and I just think the performances are good and the characters, by and large, are well-observed. And I just think uh, 
you know, a, a, a ensemble within a college campus is the right sort of setting to be able to tell this sort of story. I think it is a smarter uh, a structure for this kind of like, I want to unload all of my frustrations with the world than most filmmakers find when they're in a similar position. I like all the ambition. I like all that. I, this movie does not totally work for me. I, and I think it also totally doesn't totally work for me either. I wish it was funnier in a weird way. Now, not at the end, but like, yeah, kind of, I wish, I wish there was a little more life in the first chunk of it. Well, that's the yeah. thing that boys in the hood does so well. Like that's Yeah, exactly. You know, it's the masterstroke of boys in the hood is that the middle act of it is pretty much a fun hangout movie by and large. You know, with a sense of dread creeping around the edges, but it, it makes you really get lulled into a sense of security with those guys. Whereas this movie, it's like, you know, the clock is ticking. Michael Rappaport's yeah. going to blow up at some point. Yeah. Rappaport is a tough character to have in any movie, like that that character anyway. I mean, Singleton seems to be positive on this movie, though, right? Like, I feel I read one of those interviews that you're talking about, the 20th anniversary interviews. Yeah. And I feel like he likes on balance this movie because he's like yeah you couldn't make that now like i'm glad i got that out even though it sort of got everything in it yeah i think he was very proud of it in that sense and it's it's just frustrating that it, it does feel like a movie that is begging for a kind of reclamation that would probably come with him putting together perhaps a, a cut closer to his original vision but it's like they remastered this for blu-ray the fucking year he died you know he did press for it he didn't seem to imply that he had a cut that he could easily, you know, spruce up or that anyone was asking him to reconstruct it. And now he's gone. It just feels unlikely that someone else would take the effort to do it. Um, There's kind of a sweet LA Times piece about this movie and from last year, I think, and just kind of how upsettingly relevant it is to rediscover. But it was about uh, uh, Singleton's oldest daughter is named Justice. He named her after Poetic Justice. And she discovered this movie at a screening while in the film program at USC after he died, which is a pretty huh. profound thing to think about. Like to be Singleton's daughter, be 26, your father's just died young, you're following in his footsteps at his alma mater, and you watch this movie for the first time, one of his films that you hadn't seen. And to feel like, oh, this is like my dad not only speaking to me, but making something that speaks as much to all the conditions I'm living in right now. You know, and all people my age. It's it's a wild thing to think about. Right. Yeah. That that yeah. Put, put a lump in my throat. No, that's 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 wonderful and and sad. That's very interesting. Yep. Uh should we play the box office game? Micah, do you have any more higher learning thoughts we didn't get to? You didn't you didn't get to, you know, drop any any other bombs you want to drop? Do I have any other bombs that I would like to drop? Hmm. About higher learning. No, I don't think I do. Um, no, I actually, and the thing is that like I was pausing because I was actually thinking, I don't think I have anything else. <laughs> we, 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 we talked it out. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's an interesting movie. I don't know. Like this has been an interesting miniseries so far in that I, I do like a lot of the swings he takes post phenomenon, instant phenomenon status. Like yeah. it's a tough it's a tough way to start your career in a weird way, even though obviously it lets him make Yeah, it's tough to be saddled with that expectation of importance. You know, it wasn't just like, 
oh, this guy's mm-hmm. like a whiz behind the camera. It wasn't just, oh, this guy makes hits. It was like, this guy's fucking saying shit. And I think yeah. if you're in your 20s and suddenly that's thrown on you every time you make a movie, it's like he makes poetic justice and critics are like, what's this? This feels weirdly slight from the boys in the hood guy. And then this one comes out and critics are like, I don't know, too much. He should have less <laughs> sure. to say. You know, it was like already they were kind of like he was in an impossible position. It makes sense in a way that he took such a hard swing to like, just let me make like popcorn movies, you know? Let me make like action movies and thrillers. Let me just try to be a really top shelf craftsman doing like good popcorn. I I think it just probably started to feel a little oppressive to him. Here's the quote that you were paraphrasing, which I found where you said, if you look at higher learning, which I was 25 years old making it, I'm like chock full of everything that would concern young people, everything I could put in that movie. It was a great movie, a fun movie to do, but you could never get that movie made now. Never. The guy shoots everybody. Know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, he sure does. Oh, man. <laughs> um, so this, all right, Griff, this movie came out January 13th, 1995. I assume that's Martin Luther King Day weekend because uh, his earlier movies are both summer movies, right? Boys in the Hood was too, right? Yeah, yeah, both yeah, July. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of surprising that they would release this in January. You feel like they would think of this as like an Oscar play, but I guess maybe from test screenings and whatever, they knew it wasn't getting that buzz. It's just bizarre to release it like two weeks into January for a pretty highbrow movie, at least on its in theory, you know? But that's where it is. So, yeah, this is an interesting top five. Okay, so it's opening number two at the box office, $13 million, 17 in the four day. Uh, and it makes like 40 domestic, 38 domestic. Yeah. Um, but the number one movie is one of those movies people just don't remember exists, but it was a big hit. It's a big period epic with um, some uh, two big stars, uh, an Oscar winner and a young hottie. Now, I'm assuming this is a holdover from the end of 94 from the holiday season, or is this it a new release? Is, it is. It's in its fourth week, but I think this is the first week it's going wide, so it's jumped to number one. Because it's is added it Legends like, of the Fall? It's Legends of the Fall. Ed Zwick. The Hotties. Brad what Pitt. The, wow. This is Anthony Micah. Hopkins. This is how my brain works. This is my only currency. I mean, like the thing is that, like, despite my knowing, despite my knowing that movie and having seen it a bunch of times, I would have never been able to place it off of like that scant of a description. And the thing is, probably just because, like, I I wasn't watching movies like that in '95. <laughs> it's it's a two pronged thing. One is that uh, uh, I mean, I am similarly young. I wasn't aware of this movie when it came out, but I obsessively study box office charts for fun, or at least did for the better part of like my teen years and early twenties. So now this stuff is burned into my brain. The other X factor now is now at this point, David and I are like an old married couple. And I can sometimes (laughs) guess what movie it is based on how David describes it. Not even because (laughs) of what it alludes to in the movie itself. But I just think like, what would David think of this movie? I feel that. That's beautiful. He would call Legend of the Fall two hotties being hot. It's not a good movie. Right. But that's, I just immediately, you said two, it's two hotties. And I went, it's Pitt and Ormond. I know exactly what David's thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, 
I don't know. I feel like it's mostly known for like the score these days, right? Yeah, like, just, that, it's that mostly known for forgotten. the score and his hair, right? His hair. And it was yeah. like Ormond's big debut and everyone thought she was going to be the next big thing and then it didn't really happen. Aiden Quinn was going to be a thing too. That, you yeah. know, he was he was coming up. All right, number two is Higher Learning. Number three, also new this week, uh, also from a black director, unusual probably to have in the 90s, two movies in the mm-hmm. top five from black directors. Um, mm-hmm. it's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say much more. To, uh, it's a horror comedy. It's a horror comedy. It's not sort of. Hmm. Hmm. Lightly satirical, perhaps. <sighs> it's hard to describe this movie without describing it, which would immediately give it away. It's a black director, though. That gives it away. It's a black director. Is it a slasher movie? No. No. It's a horror movie with a black director in 1995 that is somewhat comedic. And is it a one-off? Does it have sequels? It Does has it spawn a anything? sequel. It's based on a TV show, and it has a sequel. It's based on a TV show, and it has a sequel. Yes. That's a horror comedy. Yes, but don't worry too much about comedy because it's sort of like, that's sort of complicated. This is so hard to describe. I'm just trying to think even through like uh, uh, black directors working in the studio system in the early 90s. And it's like, okay, so Friday's the same year. It's not F. Gary Gray. It's not Spike Lee. It's obviously not Singleton. It's not an Ernest Dickerson movie, is it? It is an Ernest Dickerson movie. Fuck. I was looking at Ernest Dickerson's filmography today. Oh, is it the Tales from the Crypt movie? Yes. What's the subtitle? Uh, fuck. It's called uh, Demon Knight. It's Demon Knight. That is the movie. <laughs> Demon With Knight. Billy Zane, Jada Pinkett. CCH yeah. Pounder, oh, wow. William yeah. Sadler, Dick Miller, Thomas Hayden Church. It's all happening. Um. Yeah, Demon Knight opening big for uh, Tales from the Crypt movie, <laughs> ten million dollars. Nobody's mad. Uh, that's number three. They thought this was gonna work, and then Bordello of Blood killed it so hard. We forgot to mention this when we did our Tales from the Crypt episode for Zemeckis, but you know what the third Tales from the Crypt movie was supposed to be, right? That was lined up and ready to go. I don't. Did we not mention this? What What was it? We didn't mention this. The Frighteners. Oh, yes. I, yes. I, right, right. We didn't mention that. I did know that. Peter Jackson's The Frighteners was supposed to be the third Tales from the Crypt movie. And then Zemeckis was like, I think you got a good thing here. You should make it stand on its own and not tie it to the Tales from the Crypt thing. And he made that decision right before Bordello of Blood, which was very smart. Right, 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 right. Like then Bordello of Blood came out and would have killed its chance to get made. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Demon Knight. Demon Knight. Number four at the box office was number one the previous weekend. It is, it has dropped, it has added 3% to its total. It is a word of mouth smash hit comedy. Uh, it is, a, it was a December release. It's in its fifth week. Uh, what is it, Griffin? Huh. It's not, is it a Jim Carrey? It is. Is it Dumb and Dumber? It's Dumb and Dumber, the third of his 394 releases. Because it's 
Ace Ventura at the top of 94, The Mask in the Summer, Dumb and Dumber at Christmas. That was his 1994. Right. It's uh, bananas. Bananas, bananas. Crazy, crazy opening there uh, from Jim. Number five is an Oscar holdover. It's expanding this week. It's getting a best actor nomination for sure for its star, mm-hmm. uh, who is a legend. It's a sort of comedy drama. I auditioned for this movie in that weird what? way where like someone came to my school, you know, to PS 87. Precocious children. Yeah. Yeah. And like talked to some kids one by one in like a empty classroom. You know what I mean? And then later my dad was like, wow, yeah, wow. you were auditioning for that movie that, you know, that like or whatever. They were looking for a kid for that movie. Yeah. They did that unsurprisingly at my the fucking gross, precocious New York private middle school for Royal Tannenbaums. And I absolutely blew it because I knew it too well and wanted it too badly. Like they were like, we're just looking. Right. For- they were like, no, get this. Get this kid out of here. Yeah, y'all had cast of people just just swinging by your school. Like it's New York, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I went I did not go to private school, but yes, but still, I may feel like. It's just New York. They're just like, let's just swing through New York City and like, we'll we'll just, we'll find some precocious ass kid. Right. Yeah. Right. I just feel like they were looking for precocious kids and they were looking at all these different schools and they came and I like recognized from the flyer like, oh, this is the new Wes Anderson movie because I'm a 12 year old Wes Anderson fuck. And I was like, oh, oh, I love Rushmore. And they were like, yeah, automatically disqualified. Well, I saved Latin. What did you do? I, I was quoting shit. I had my own fucking punctuality pen and they were like out of here. You are not in this movie. <laughs> anyway, it was like it was like Bart Simpson trying to get cast as Fallout Boy. I was walking in with the pinstripe suit and the tiny dog. OK, I'm sorry. The movie, it, the, the actor gets the nomination. Yep. Uh, I think uh, it also gets a screenplay nomination. It's not Mr. Holland's opus, is it? No, it's not. It's it's not as well known a movie as that. It's not a bad movie, it, but it's a it's kind of uh-huh. forgotten. It's one of those nominations for this actor, and he must have like ten or something. You know, he was nominated many times. Where you're like, oh yeah, right, oh yeah, that one, yeah, sure, sure. He, he's maybe gone he would have won for this, but he'd already won. Yeah, he he's dead. He's dead. He had already won at this point. It's in the 90s. He was legendary. It was one of many. Ten nominations this guy got in his career. Plus, he won an honorary award and a humanitarian award. But did he ever... Is it Paul Newman? It's Paul Newman. It's not Nobody's Fool, is it? It is Nobody's Fool. Why wouldn't it be Nobody's Fool? I thought of that earlier, and for some reason, I, I think of that movie as being earlier. I don't, I don't think of that being 94. Yeah. I actually like that movie a lot. Uh, yeah, that movie's pretty good, right? Bruce Willis? Yeah. yeah. Is in it? it like, kind of making an uh, effort, because he's in a Paul Newman movie? Like, yeah, I like yeah. that movie. But now I'm just imagining a little, a little Sims being sprinkled in. David yeah, Sims. I don't even know who they brought in for that movie who I could have I could have vaulted to start him. Maybe if I maybe you were reading up. for the Bruce Willis part and they just decided to flip it a very <laughs> different way. Went into a different direction. Anyway. Yeah, I'm uh, just even looking for anyone who would have been young at the time of the Alexander Goodwin. Born sure, 1987. This has to be. That sounds yeah. right. I was born in 88. Yeah, I'm 86. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's yeah he's in is. this. Yeah. He's in Mimic. He's in. Mm-hmm. I'm not Rappaport. Okay. Anyway, you could have you could have been uh, Alexander Goodwin. 
uh, there, there, but for the grace of God, go you. <laughs> Thank God I was not, but that, that's, yes. I just, I just remember it later that my dad was like, oh no, that was for like that movie. Nobody's fool. That, that, that time that the, the whole third grade from PS 87 was rounded up or whatever. Yeah. That, that was you. Yeah. You must've felt like somebody's fool when you heard that that's the movie you had almost been cast in. Absolutely. And thank you for saying that. And it was brave that you said that. I want to say that the other movies in the top 10 this week were House Guest, which I saw in theaters and thought was a masterpiece. Disclosure. Of course. Uh, one of the wildest movies ever made. Uh, Little mm-hmm. Women, the, 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 you know, Claire Danes, uh, Little Women, uh, mm-hmm. Kristen Dunst, yada, yada. Uh, the Jungle Book, the live action Jungle Book, which I also saw in theaters and scared the shit yep. out of me. The Terrifying. Stephen Summers movie. Terrifying. Uh, good movie. Uh, in my memory. Just absolutely wild to think, like, you know, in, in the last decade, they're like, here, we're doing like a big, happy family, state of the art, special effects showcase Jungle Book movie. And in the 90s, they were just like, we're just going to put Jason Scott Lee on camera with a bunch of wild animals and hope <laughs> that nobody gonna, dies. He's just going to fight a tiger. Right? Like, that movie was like almost roar, you know? Yeah, it's just like, yeah. I, I, I pulled up the trailer for that movie a couple times because I've been like, did that really exist or am I misremembering it? And you watch the trailer and you're just like, it is astonishing that no one was scalped during the production of this film. It's just him doing long scenes with like a bear and a jaguar. That, that's that's great. Yeah. Wild. Um, and Far From Home, The Adventures of Yellow Dog. That's uh, new this week at number 10. Oh, you of remember course. Far From Home, The Adventures of Yellow Dog with Jesse Bradford? I could forget a title like that, Far From Home, The Adventures of Yellow Dog. Uh, I just like saying it. Micah, thank you so much for being on the show. Of course, of course, of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Swinging in, higher uh, learning for for enrolling. People should listen to Sound Only. They should read your work on the Ringer. Credits I will never ever forget to associate with you again in my life. I appreciate it, Griff. That's 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 what we call that's what we call growth. You know, we're we're, we're some higher probably- learning. <laughs> this episode is dropping in like May, but I do, you got you and Justin did just. Uh, talk about Malcolm and Marie. That was the episode I was just yes. listening to. Anyway. Uh, Justin Charity, friend of the show, past and future guest. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We did we did yell at each other for a while about Malcolm and Marie. Yeah, but but look, David, by by the end of May, we're still going to be trying to unpack Malcolm and Marie. I mean, this is one <laughs> of those. It's a sticky text. We're not going to let go of this one. Ugh. Absolutely. Can we, sticky, can, 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 can we please just, you know? A sticky text, Malcolm and Marie. Oh, man. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. I realized, I realized recently, I've been trying to improve my diction on the outro because I feel like I've started slurring all my words together. And sure, that's you one rush of the, or whatever. Right. That's one of the ticks I've realized is I no longer say the D in and subscribe. I go rate, review, and subscribe. Like it's my... A, a lady's name and subscribe. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media. Thank you to our editing team, Alex Barron and AJ McKeon. Thank you to Joe Bone and Pat Reynolds for our artwork. Thank you to Lane Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. Go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit and go to our Shopify page for some real nerdy shirts. You can go to patreon.com slash blank. Trek for blank check special features where you can commentaries on franchises, 
including some franchise that we're covering right now that we don't know yet because we're recording episodes three months in advance. Uh, them's the breaks. Tune in next week for Rose Wood. And as always, <clears throat> I could give zero fucks. <laughs> Suck his dead nuts. Thank you. Cancer sucks worse than haters.